When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The material is just thin in my judgment. And so uh, given how hard ancient history is in general, uh, I think that there are skeptical scenarios that work if you are a skeptic. I'm not a skeptic, but I'm trying to be fair-minded and, and objective. Uh, I also happen to think, as I told you, I'm a Christian. I'm happy to say Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, but I don't think I can persuade a totally open-minded person, uh, open-minded person, on the basis of, basis of history alone. That just uh, isn't the way it, way it works. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, or at least about 85% of him. Uh, got a little, I'm a little under the weather, so if you notice my voice is a little little hoarse, that's why. Uh, but, um, you know, the show must go on, as they say. One of the things I had intended on doing was this week continuing with the next logical episode uh, in our series on grief and grieving. However, I had the fortune of getting a chance to interview Dr. Dale Allison from Princeton Theological Seminary on a topic that I find fascinating. and I know a lot of you have asked about it, uh, just in regards to some of the larger miracles that occur or take place throughout the Bible. Um, and this is the biggest, biggest one. Obviously, you know, we are coming quickly upon Easter and the resurrection is a big one. You know, what, uh, how do we, how do we think about this? How do we look at it? You know, did it really, you know, happen? Uh, was it, uh, you know, a product of, uh, kind of revisionist history? You know, was it something that is meant to be taken, you know, you know, metaphorically, like, how do we, how do we view this? You know, cause it's obviously a huge claim that we have as, uh, part of Christianity. So, uh, Dr. Allison uh, has written and done tons of research, has written a really fascinating book on the resurrection, and so we got a chance to talk, and I thought, how cool would it be to drop these episodes right before Easter? So um, 
very topical. So anyway, um, if you don't know who Dr. Allison is, he's the Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. He earned his master's and PhD from Duke University. Uh, His academic research and publications include the historical Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, Second Temple Judaism, and the history of interpretation and application of biblical texts. Um, He's got several books out, including Constructing Jesus, it was selected as best book relating to the New Testament for the 09 to 2010 uh, by the Biblical Archaeology Society. And then, of course, the uh, his more recent books, uh, like the one I referenced um, a second ago, The Resurrection of Jesus, Apologetics, Polemic, History, and Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience, and a Secular Age uh, is, is the big one that we focus on here. So, uh, check it out. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, part one will be this week. Part two, I'm actually going to do it a little differently. I want you guys to have it before Easter. So part one will come out today, obviously, right now. Uh, and part two, I'm going to drop on the Saturday uh, of the weekend leading into Easter. So that way, uh, both parts are out. You can listen to it in its entirety uh, before actual Easter. So enjoy. Uh, and in a couple of weeks, we will resume the Grief and Grieving uh, series with a brand new guest. Uh, so if my intros are a little outdated, that's why. <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to be as you know uh, productive as possible and, and get a lot of the stuff done ahead of time. So, uh, so anyway, uh, enjoy this. And uh, as always, if you want to check out what we're up to, um, other than than podcasting, uh, lots of new blog posts on the website. So www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, you can go there to link to our Patreon campaign if you want to support in that way. Uh, we have a web store. Um, again, the blog is on there. And then, of course, you can stream for free our entire back catalog of over 150 episodes uh, right through the website. And you can link to us on social media if you want to yell at me for something. Uh, that's it. All right. Let's get to it. Without further ado, part one with Dr. Dale freaking Allison. I am helpless. This water I am treading is now my home. Okay, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I have with me a guest this week who I'm very excited to talk to since we are, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it will be, I believe, uh, mere days before Easter. So thank you so much, Dr. Dale Allison, for coming on the show. Quite happy to be here. So before we jump in, uh, tell tell listeners a little bit about yourself, the kind of work that you do, and uh, how you got into um, studying the resurrection specifically. Well, I am primarily an historian of early Christianity. I have focused on the historical Jesus and the Gospels, uh, but I've done other things in addition to that. And uh, I tend to alternate my academic um, books, books that only scholars are going to look at. Some of them, very few scholars are going to look at, just a handful of people. I try to alternate those really heavy-duty academic books with more popular books uh, for a wider audience. So I, I, I do more than one thing. But if the question you're asking here is, how did I get into this particular topic? Um, it really goes back to college, and it just goes back to my own doubts, wondering uh, about the stories in the Gospels, how much history is there, how much uh, is legend, 
And um, when I was in college, I read a number of what you might call conservative or apologetical or traditional approaches to the resurrection, and none of them convinced me. But what really set me off is I read a book by a theologian who's now dead named Wolfhard Pannenberg, very famous German theologian. And in his book called Jesus, God, and Man, he has a, a very famous section in which he seeks to prove or show or demonstrate that Jesus literally rose from the dead, and he accept, accepts the empty tomb, and he thinks the best historical explanation for the data is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I remember reading it for the first time, and I was probably in my second year of college, and I remember very vividly putting down the book uh, at that point when I finished with that section and pacing the room and wondering, what the heck did he just do? Did he actually do what he claimed to do? And uh, I thought, this is just isn't really possible, is it? But he's a very smart person. And these were very clever and interesting arguments. So I continued to pay attention to this issue. And then in my doctoral dissertation, which was on the historical Jesus, I did have a sort of excursus because I couldn't leave this topic alone, trying to connect the rest of the book with this issue of how do we explain the rise of, of belief in, in Jesus, the, the, the belief in, in Easter. And that was a very short uh, attempt to sort of sketch uh, a solution and then in a book published in 2005, I came back to the topic, and uh, the book that book is entitled Resurrecting Jesus, and the longest chapter in it by far, I think it's 200 pages long, so it's kind of silly to call it a chapter, but uh, it's on that topic, that is, how do we explain, how do we understand uh, the origin of Christian belief that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, but I wasn't satisfied with this at all. Uh, felt like I still had lots of things to think through. And so uh, I spent the next, or parts of the next 15 years working on it some more. And then in 2019 or 20, um, I published this book called The Resurrection of Jesus. And it's, you know, I am, I suppose, a sort of amateur theologian, but, you know, my first calling and my training is history. So, I'm trying in this book, first of all, to think historically, and I'm also trying to think with public arguments. That is, I'm trying to construct arguments that everybody should be able to understand, even if they disagree with my conclusions. Um, the The book is a... Um, has lots of people who don't like it. Let's put it that way. And the, the reason is, is that I'm neither a skeptic nor an apologist. So I am a Christian, and I'm happy to say I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and I have some conservative historical conclusions. Um, for example, I think the, empty the tomb was probably empty. That's my judgment as an historian, but I'm not certain about it. And uh, there's more one, than one explanation for it, if it is, in fact, historical. And if it has something to do with God and resurrection and the afterlife, it's deeply puzzling to me. That is, theologically, I don't need, I don't need an empty tomb myself theologically, and it's deeply puzzling to me. Um, but the reason the book uh, 
doesn't make everyone happy is that on the one hand, it's not skeptical, right? I, I don't say that these early Christians belief are ridiculous or they are pure legend or that they are um, without any historical basis. They go back to hallucinations that are subjective and so on. On the other hand, I, I don't think my apologist friends are correct. I, I think the, the data is less, um, much less, more, much more ambiguous than they think it is. I don't think it compels a decision. I think that uh, there are skeptical scenarios that make sense to a skeptic. Uh, but I think also that if, if you want to be a traditionalist here, there's nothing here in the evidence to disconfirm that, that traditional belief. Um, so I'm sort of in the middle here, and that often creates a problem because the crowds are off to the sides, right? The, the crowds are off to the sides. So I'm, I'm between right and left or conservative and radical. And some people would look at me and think that I'm very, very liberal, and others look at me and say, wow, he's really conservative. He's just, uh, you know, way too conservative about the history here. So um, maybe that's a sort of uh, introduction to, the, to, to what I've been doing. Um, I do think that the, the, the big book is the end of the line. That is, I have other books I want to write before I pass on. Uh, so I won't be coming back uh, to that subject. And... Um, I don't even want to defend what I wrote there. I'm perfectly happy just to have the book out in the world and then people can discuss it and uh, debate points in it, make up their own mind. And the discussion from now on will go forward with without me. I think I'm, I'm done on that topic. Uh, I usually, the truth is, I usually write books for myself so I know what to think. Uh, when I just think about things, I'm not confident of my conclusions. So my best way of deciding for myself is to write a book and then I convince myself of something and then I want to go on to the next topic. So that's what's going on here. I'm going on to other topics because there are other things that I'm interested in or puzzled uh, puzzled about. Yeah, that's that's an interesting approach. I like that. Um, it, it made me, what you said made me think of something, uh, years and years ago, we were interviewing, um, N.T. Wright, um, and he, he had written a book about the, uh, the resurrection as well. And one of the things he mentioned in our interview was that, you know, it's one thing to deal with history, you know, where you've got hopefully as many primary resources as possible, you know, so you can get to, you know, what the, the actual eyewitnesses who are on, on scene, but it's a whole nother beast, a whole nother animal to deal with ancient history where, the materials that we have, as he put it, probably fit on, you know, one shelf of a bookshelf, you know? And uh -huh. so, so talk about like just the, um, complications with even diving into a project like this to try to study something that happened thousands of years ago. Well, well, what I would say is that all the evidence, all the evidence is thin, all right? So if you look at any particular passage or any particular claim, all the questions that you want to ask can't be answered. So one of my favorite illustrations of this is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to the 500 and that some are dead, but some are alive. Okay, that's all we know. We don't know who these people were. We don't know what kind of appearance this was. That is, was this a guy in a receiving line 
is this something up in the heavens, like, you know, Constantine's vision uh, of the cross in the sky? Is it uh, like uh, some Marian visions where there's a, uh, an apparition that's not up in the heavens, but it's not exactly on the ground. It's 20 feet up floating, right? So there are all sorts of possibilities here. We also don't know who counted the number. I'm sure there was no, uh, you know, one of these things you have in the subway, uh, subways where you run in oh, and they can out. count. Yeah, 500. It's just got to be there were a lot of people, right? And we don't know when. We don't know if this is pre or post Pentecost. I'm inclined to think it's post Pentecost because it's not in the Gospels. Uh, we don't know why these people were gathered. My guess is that they were gathered. If they're 500, they're probably gathered for some occasion. So what the heck was that? And what were they being told? And what were they expecting? Okay, so that's just one event. You can go on and on. And it's, it's true for, for all the details, right? It's true for all the details. And this makes our job so hard. It's also the case that all of the primary sources represent the believers, right? That is, we don't have Pilate's account of this thing, and we don't have the high priest of Jerusalem's diary where he talks about what he really thinks happened, so if, if you think of how this works, you know, you think, for example, of Mormonism. That's, that's my favorite example when talking to Christian apologists. So if, you, if all you had were certain select sources that were from the, the, the Mormons themselves, you might, if you're not a Mormon, you might not believe them. But you really wouldn't know what to put in their place. The reason that apologists have different stories is because not all the material is from inside the Mormon church, and they've also preserved some things that are embarrassing. But there's a lot more stuff there, in my judgment, about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. We know a lot about Joseph Smith, for example, right? And we know a lot about some of his early followers. If you ask, well, who was Thaddeus? Well, he was one of the 12, and he saw Jesus. What did he do? What happened to him? Where did he go? What happened to Bartholomew? Who are these people, right? Did any of them after five years of being missionaries, say it's time to go back to Galilee and I want to be a farmer again? Uh, I, I don't know. So that's part of what's going on here. I think the sources are thin. And I also have always agreed with Origen, who's one of my, my intellectual heroes. Origen says in his commentary on John that... One of the most difficult things to do is to show or prove that something happened, even if it did happen. Even if it did happen, it's really hard to show. And I, I think he's right, especially when you are dealing with ancient sources. Um, you know, people, people debate the character of, let's say, Abraham Lincoln and they debate what he was up to and what he really had in mind and so on. We have tons of sources, including firsthand sources from Abraham Lincoln. People are still trying to figure out who this guy was and what he was really doing and what made him tick and what his uh, religious beliefs were, for example. Really interesting, difficult question. He's got some. Uh, but then you go back and you've got 
Mark 16, which is eight verses long, <laughs> right? You've got eight verses there. And then you've got you know, 20 verses in Matthew 28. I mean, ooh, okay. And you've got uh, a little more material in Luke. And you've got two chapters, actually, in the Gospel of John. But, of course, that's the latest text and the one people are most skeptical of. And then Paul, Paul says Jesus appeared to him, right? But he doesn't give you any details about it at all. None. Zero. You have these accounts in Acts, but those are very short, very short accounts. And they notoriously don't agree on it, even among themselves, right? Um, did the people who are with Paul see something but not hear something? Or was it the other way around? Luke actually has it both ways. So the material is just thin in my judgment. And so uh, given how hard ancient history is in general, uh, I think that there are skeptical scenarios that work if you are a skeptic. I'm not a skeptic, but I'm trying to be fair-minded and, and objective. Uh, I also happen to think, as I told you, I'm a Christian. I'm happy to say Jesus rose from the dead. Um, but I don't think I can persuade a totally open-minded person, uh, open-minded person, on the basis of, basis of history alone. That just uh, isn't the way way it works. So, I I guess at the end of the day, I I think Pannenberg tried to do too much. All right, so that's a way of uh, of saying this. And again, some of my friends who are evangelical apologists, I may agree with them on some things, but. I don't. I don't think that, uh, as one old book put it, the the evidence demands a verdict in this case. You could look at the evidence and say, "Well, I don't know what happened," or "Here's a skeptical scenario, and it's possible." Right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, something that you said made me think also of, <clears throat> from a hi- historical standpoint, you know, you're always looking for some uh, some sort of unbiased outside source or as unbiased mm-hmm. as possible. Um, and, and to my to my knowledge, I think the only non you know uh, Jew or, or, or early Christian within that community of believers was like Josephus, who says very little. I think he just says uh, he preached in this area and uh, was crucified and died. And, and that that's pretty much it. He doesn't say a whole lot. So he does at one point refer to the resurrection in interesting language, but he's not himself a Christian. And he refers in the extant works to Jesus only twice. Once, it's actually a passage about Jesus's brother, James. He's talking about James and he just references Jesus in that passage. The other is a sort of very brief paragraph description of Jesus. The problem is that there are phrases in it that sound very Christian, and Josephus isn't a Christian. So the usual take on this, of course, there are always people on with other opinions, but the usual take, and the one I'm, I'm inclined to think, is that Josephus 
had a paragraph about Jesus, and some of the original phrasing is still there. But the text wasn't passed down by Jews. It was passed down by Christians, and some of the scribes inevitably had to sort of embellish it a little bit to make it sound better, and uh, that's what happened. But you're right. If you want to talk about first-century Jewish sources that aren't Christian, that's, that's it. And we have some later rabbinic sources, but those are all fourth-century or later, right? And so, so historians aren't going to do anything uh, with with that. So, yeah, the the, the point uh, or the contrast with Mormonism holds up. We do have lots of people who weren't Mormons who knew Joseph Smith and knew various other things, and we have their testimony. And people, you know, try to try to figure out what happened. We just don't we just don't have that. Um, I, I like to say also, just to be provocative, for all I know, Jesus appeared to Pilate, or maybe he appeared to Caiaphas, and, and uh, Pilate just said, that's got to be indigestion. I just, I can't, you know, I can't do that. I uh, can't go there. It doesn't fit his uh, social circle, right? He'd yeah. be in trouble. Uh, so, yeah, who knows what, what happened? We just don't have the, the details. I'd love to see Pilate's diary. Absolutely. Hey, to see Peter's diary. You know, one of the things we have in 1 Corinthians 15 is Jesus appeared first to Peter. Now, of course, you can ask, didn't he appear first to Mary Magdalene, which is what you have in John and, and, and Matthew? If so, why is she left out? But that's all, in, that's all you have. And you don't have a story in the Gospels about Jesus appearing to Peter. So you're perfectly free to say almost anything about it. Because it just says Jesus appeared to Peter. What was that? When did it happen? Was he awake? Was he sleeping? Was he getting up from sleep? Was he completely alone? Uh, was he going about his business? Was he in the in the middle of mourning? Uh, you know, M O U R N I N G. We don't know anything. Had he already heard from Mary that Jesus had appeared to her and that the tomb was empty? In which case, you know, a skeptic can say, well, he was already primed and all, all the rest of it. The, my point is, we don't, have a cl- we don't have any information about it. Again, Luke, will, Luke says, in agreement with 1 Corinthians 15, that, that Jesus appeared to Peter. But the story's not there. It's missing. So why is it missing? Why didn't it get told? I don't know. Um, and, and by the way, did Jesus say anything? Uh, I have wondered, I have wondered, maybe Jesus appeared to Peter means that Jesus just appeared to Peter and he saw him for a few seconds and then he just popped out and that's it. So there's really no story to tell. There's nothing interesting there. Again, I don't know that that's the case at all, but nobody knows what happened. So that's another illustration of how thin the sources are, at least to my mind. Does he have a body or even a name? If he does, does he know that I'm alive? Is God even here? Does she care that I doubt? Does she care?
Love. 